Well, good morning. My name is Nick. If anybody's new, uh, I get to be the pastor here, and I'm glad to be with you. And just like Pastor Ben said, we are going to be talking about Revelation chapter 2 this morning. I want to take a moment because I'm up here. My wife was leading worship right here. She's the really pretty one. And yesterday, she turned 40 years old. So, and all of you women are like, how dare you say that out loud? She doesn't even care. She's like, I'm happy to be alive. So, it's awesome. And uh, we've been married for over 18 years, so almost half of our lives, and it's been amazing. So, I love her. I love you guys. And I'm excited to continue with the book of Revelation. When I think about naming my sermons, for some reason, the first thing that always pops in my head is some random song. I, I, I'm not original. I just think of song titles. And so my, my name for this sermon is from the 80s. It is Tainted Love. You guys remember some Tainted Love? Some good like, oh man, that when they figured out how to use electronics for the first time, and they're like, we're going to go way overboard on this. So good. Today we're going to continue on. We're going to get into the part of Revelation that John starts to write letters, smaller letters within the letter, the whole book, to specific churches. And today, like Pastor Ben said, we are going to talk about the church of Ephesus. Warren Wearsby, a famous uh, Bible commentator, says in this part of Revelation that each church is getting an x-ray of their health. They're going into Dr. Jesus. Dr. Jesus is giving them an x-ray of what's going on in their church, letting them know what they are doing well, but then also letting them know what is unhealthy in you, what needs to be cut out so that you can continue to grow more and more. We've been in this book for a couple weeks. If you haven't been with us, just a couple quick things. The book of Revelation, singular, not plural. It's not revelations, even though you hear that often when people talk about it. It is revelation. It is one revelation, and it is about Jesus Christ. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there, but the book is about Jesus. And revelation in Greek is literally the word apocalypse. We hear that word and we say, oh, doom and gloom. But that's not what apocalypse means. Apocalypse is an unveiling. That's, that which was hidden is now being unveiled. And it is an unveiling of God's truth to his people so that we can have a better understanding of what is going to happen in the future of the kingdom of God. We read this book and we know the end of the story, spoiler alert, God wins. But God unveils more so that we can understand what are we looking for as this happens. The human author that God used to write the book was most likely the Apostle John. He's writing the book from Patmos, an island in the Aegean Sea that is a penal colony. He has been sent there as a criminal because of his leadership in the church. The church is experiencing significant persecution, and so their leaders, like John, are being persecuted and sent off to jail just for proclaiming the gospel. So he writes this letter, and he writes it specifically, it tells us, to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which when you think about that, Asia Minor doesn't mean China, Korea. It's not that Asia Minor is what we modern day call the Turkey area. So there's the seven churches that are there. And so he writes specifically to them, but he's also writing to the entire church. All of the church in the world then, all of the church in the world now, all those who ever will 
come under the banner of Jesus Christ. This is a message, an unveiling of God's truth for all of us. And so week one, we started to talk about that this is, like I said, it's a message about Jesus. And we started to talk about this, this amazing de- description that we have of Jesus in chapter one. If you have that picture, this is the best picture I could find that kind of gives some sort of artistic rendering to us because obviously we can't fully understand this, but it says that he's wearing priestly robes with a golden sash. His hair is as white as snow. His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice is like the roar of many waters. And in his hand, he holds the seven stars. From his mouth is a double-edged sword and his face is shining like the sun at full strength. And so John, you can see John there, He is so overwhelmed by the fullness of the glory of Jesus in his glorified state that he falls down as though dead, as anybody would if you came face to face with the full glory of Jesus. And yet Jesus lays his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. I've got you. And I have everything under control. I am sovereign over the entire world. And with that, John It's there, and Jesus basically says, okay, it's time to write some letters. So he says, write down what I say. And so we're going to jump in. If you have a Bible, a device, or whatever, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is going to be our scripture for today. And it's on the screen as well if you don't have. Revelation 2, 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned your love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the, to the churches, what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Okay, a lot to unpack there. So let's break this down. The very beginning of it, it says that this letter is from him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In each of these seven letters to the churches, there is a description of Jesus that is taken from Revelation 1. He's establishing this same Jesus that we're talking about is the Jesus over each and every one of these churches. He is sovereign over all of them. And so in this, he says he he holds the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches, and he walks among the seven lampstands. And the lampstands are the churches. I love this. Notice this. Don't miss it. Jesus walks among his churches. He is not distant. He is not absent. He is not uncaring. He is right there walking among his churches. And then it's addressed to the angel 
of the church in Ephesus. And we talked about this a little bit in week, in chapter one, in week one of this. We don't actually know exactly what that means. A lot of people have conjecture. Who is this angel of the church? And so we talked about some ideas. Some people say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit in that church. And I don't think that that's really the answer because there's this part where it says, write to the angel, I hold this against you. He wouldn't hold against the Holy Spirit, right? He wouldn't hold that against them. And so then some people say, well, maybe it's, it's kind of this more like esoteric idea of like the prevailing spirit of the church. That might be the answer. Some people say it's the pastors or leaders of the church or the angels of the church. That could be, but that makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> that, was, that laugh was a little too... Too excitable, Andrea. You, you shot that one down real quick. But you're right. Because <laughs> I'm not an angel. Nor anything close to it. That couldn't have been better. That was awesome. <laughs> I want to give another thought. And this is where I lean. But again, I don't, through this sermon series, I don't want to teach you what to think about Revelation. I want to teach you how to think about Revelation. I want you to dig into it. This is my thought on the whole angel thing. What are the angels of the churches? Is There's a much kind of deeper dive into the theology of this, which I nerd out about. I hope you do too, because I'm about to do it. Um, maybe they are actual angels. Maybe he is being literal in this sense. And that there are angels that are assigned, so to speak, to geographical locations. They're called, in some theology circles, territorial angels. And we have this idea from the book of Daniel. If you were to turn to Daniel chapter 10, which we're not going to do right now, but Daniel is another book that is written in this apocalypse kind of literature, where it is an unveiling of truth that has been hidden before. And in Daniel chapter 10, he speaks of a vision that he had had. And he really wants to understand this vision. He's having a hard time, like, fully grasping onto what did this vision mean? So he begins to fast and pray. He stops eating, no treats, no food. He, he does nothing but drink water and he prays. For three weeks, he's fasting and praying about this vision. And after three weeks of earnestly seeking the Lord, an angel comes to him. And the angel tells Daniel that he was held up from coming to him for 21 days. He says, I was held up because the prince of the kingdom of Persia was battling me. And that idea, that prince of the king of Persia, is a, it, the idea there is that it was a demonic force over Persia, over the area of Persia. And then he says, but then Michael, the archangel, came to help me. And later in the chapter, he refers to another prince, a demonic force over Greece. And so there's one in Persia, there's one in Greece, and then later he also refers to Michael, the archangel, as a prince. And so there's this idea that there are angelic and demonic forces over specific areas in the world. And I know this, this is kind of a weird thing for us, but I, I think there's a strong biblical argument to say that there are territorial face forces that are working in different parts of the world. I think if you really start to look at that, you can see like there are 
are sins that really grip certain areas. There are things that happen. There's this spiritual warfare that is going on, and there's more to it than just us. There is a spiritual warfare. In the Gospel of John, the same author, John, talks about the enemy, the devil, as the ruler of this world. And he has princes or forces that he has sent into this world to do their work. And so there are angels that are battling that. And spiritual warfare is going on all around us. And so later, when Paul, or actually much earlier, when Paul writes a letter to Ephesus, this is 40 years before John is writing Revelation, Paul writes to Ephesus and he tells them, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He's telling this same church, Ephesus, there is a spiritual battle raging on around you. And the battle is not just flesh and blood. And then he he basically tells him in that same chapter, you need to put on the full armor of God because this is happening. So I think it's very possible just one theory, one very possible theory is that John is, is literally writing, and Jesus is saying, talk to the angel that is over Ephesus because he is a spiritual presence in that place and, and tell him these things. And so back to the letter. That was my soapbox. I'm getting off of it. Back to the letter. This letter is specifically to this church in Ephesus. And when John hears Jesus say, write to Ephesus, I guarantee John's ears perked up because this is John's home church. This is where he has attended for a long time. He has served, he has taught, he has preached. These are people that he knows, people that he loves deeply. It's also the mother church of the other six churches. It is the church that kind of planted all of these churches. Acts chapter 19 tells us that Ephesus was the center of the gospel being spread throughout Asia Minor. And so all of these churches are launched from Ephesus. And Ephesus is not a small town. I don't know about you, when I think of Bible stories, I think of like little podunk towns. Ephesus is not. We, the scholars believe there is somewhere between a quarter of a million people to a half a million people in Ephesus at this time. It is a major city. It had a theater that could hold 25,000 people. Put that in perspective. If you go down here to Bobcat Stadium and watch a football game, their maximum capacity is 17,777. I don't know who planned that, but that's awesome. It's a lot of sevens. They're trying to get some good luck in there. I don't know, but that's their maximum capacity. So almost 8,000 more people in this ancient amphitheater that they built with no modern technology. This is a major place It is a free city, meaning there are not Roman troops or garrisons patrolling the streets all the time. They are able to kind of move with impunity, do what they want to do. But the most famous thing about Ephesus was their worship of a pagan goddess named Artemis, or also known as Diana. Artemis was considered a fertility goddess, and it's believed that people in Ephesus worshipped her through ritual prostitution. During the festivals, there would be, they call them priestesses, a thousand or more priestesses would go out into the streets and practice prostitution as part of their 
pagan worship. And this temple that they built to Artemis, this is a, a reconstruction of that temple to Artemis. It is 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet high, and it had 127 columns, many of them ornate with jewels and gold. To put that in perspective, if you go down to Bobcat Stadium right now and look at the entire football field, that's bigger by a lot. You could fit an entire football field inside of that building. And it's just massive. And so their whole economy is built upon this worship of false idols and this sexuality and religion and the sin that is running rampant. And yet throughout all of that, there is still a thriving church in Ephesus that is growing and that is building. And somehow this church is reaching all of Asia Minor for the gospel. Part of it, they had some amazing leaders in this church. If you look at Ephesus, all of these major biblical people were leaders in Ephesus at some time. They had Priscilla and Aquila were the ones that brought the gospel to Ephesus. And then Apollos, Paul, Timothy, and John had all been major leaders in this church. And God is using them to do amazing things And so there's a lot of great things about the church. Jesus commends them. He says, I know your works. You toil and you're patient endurance and you cannot bear with those who are evil. And You've tested those who call themselves apostles and they're not. You've found them to be false. I know you endure patiently and bear for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. And then verse 6 says, and you hate the Nicolaitans whom I also hate. They have all these great things. And Jesus says at the beginning, he says, I know. And the language in the Greek is, is a complete and total knowing. He's not just saying, I have a pretty good idea of who you are. He's saying, no, I know your heart. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know everything about you. And I know that these things are true. They were doing good deeds. They were diligent in good works. They toil to the point of exhaustion. They're busy in a good way, doing God's work. Like I said, all of Asia Minor came to know the Lord through them. They persevere. They refuse to tolerate evil. They have spiritual discernment. They don't grow weary, and they hate false teachers. So all of this is going on. The church of Ephesus had maintained doctrinal purity. They did the right things, They said the right things. They kept the right actions. And yet, in verse 4, Jesus makes this accusation. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had first. Now, when Jesus Christ says, I have this against you, that's serious. You better listen. He's about to give you something big. He says, you've abandoned your first... Notice he doesn't say you lost your first love. It didn't fall in the cracks. He says, you have abandoned your first love. You walked away from it. And what is this first love? It is the Lord himself. It is Jesus. When they first heard the gospel, when they first knew God, There was this passion that burned inside of them. 
They loved the Lord. They loved Him so much that they said, we want to spread this message, this gospel, this good news, all throughout the world. They were passionately involved in it. But now, 40 years later, they're maintaining doctrine. They're doing the right things. They're saying the right things. They're not blatantly sinning. But the passion has grown cold. They're not motivated by their love for Christ anymore. That's exactly what the Pharisees did in the New Testament. These people who did the right things, acted the right way, dressed the right clothes, and yet they don't know the love of God. Ephesus, their church had become mechanical rather than relational. Decades before Revelation was written, Ephesus was known for its love. It was known for its love for God. It was known for its love for one another and the rest of the world. They're spreading the gospel all throughout Asia Minor, and yet now it has grown cold. It has become tainted love. How can that happen? How can you do all the right things, say all the right things, and from the outside, be a good-looking Christian church, and yet you don't love the Lord? I think there's a few ways that this happens in our lives. One is just a feeling of guilt. Maybe some of you, like my wife, I'll throw her under the bus, she's got this overriding sense of guilt all the time. If she's not spending time with our kids, she feels guilty about that. If she's not spending time with me, she feels guilty about that. Like, there's always this guilt. And so this thing happens where even if you've kind of walked away from the Lord, you still have this guilt that you have to do the right things. And that begins to be your motivator. Guilt rather than love. Maybe it's out of just a desire to be noticed. Maybe you do the right things because you want people to look at you and be like, that's a good guy. She really loves the Lord. But it's motivated by your desire to be seen a certain way than it is because you love God. Or maybe, and this one is dangerous because this one happens in ministry a lot, maybe you just recognize that you have a certain set of gifts and you want to continue to use those gifts and do those things, but your motivation has now become, I just want to do what I'm good at, not I love the Lord and want to serve Him. Robert Mounts, another Bible scholar, says, good works and pure doctrine are not adequate substitutes for that rich relationship of mutual love shared by those who have experienced for the first time the redemptive love of God. Those things cannot substitute a relationship with the Lord. You can fake it for a while. Ephesus has been faking it for maybe 20 years. Looking like a good church, looking like good Christians, and yet when Jesus looks at them, He says, your motivation is yourself. Not love for Me. Our relationship with God must be motivated by love, otherwise we're missing the whole thing. You guys, I'm sure, have read or heard at a wedding at some point, 1 Corinthians 13. 
If I speak the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all of the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What's amazing to me about that verse is why would somebody do those things if they didn't have love? Our motivations get twisted. And we lose the motivation of love for God. And the obvious illustration here is marriage. Right? If anybody's been married, you understand this idea on some level. Because if a husband does all of the right things, which, I mean, let's be honest, we all do. Tim. Tim's the perfect husband. If a husband does all of the right things, he works hard, he does housework, he spends time with his kids, he's handsome and clean, he smells nice, he doesn't say mean things about your mother, like he's just awesome. If he does all of that, but he doesn't love you, then do you have a marriage? What is that? The same is true for wives. She can do all of the right things like my wife. She's a shining example of what it means to be a wife. But if she's not motivated by love for me, then what does that relationship look like? You can do all of the right things in a marriage and still not have love. The center of the relationship must be a mutual love for one another. And the, the analogy holds up because when you first get into a relationship, just like when you first come to know the Lord, when you first get into it, it's not hard. When you're dating, or when you're first married, it's, it's all easy. You're so beautiful. You're so wonderful. Like, it's easy. But later, it takes some discipline. It takes some intentionality. You have to work at it. And it is not an accident that Jesus says, the church is my bride. Because it is the same kind of relationship, except for that if something goes wrong in this one, guess who messed up? We did. Because he's perfect. He's loving. He's there. Doing the right things, but loving us fervently. Unless you have that love, that relationship begins to slip away. Another line from Warren Wearsby that I thought was wonderful, speaking of this relationship with God and in marriages, while it is true that mature married love deepens and grows richer, it is also true that it should never lose the excitement and wonder of those honeymoon days. When a husband and wife begin to take each other for granted and life becomes routine, then the marriage is in danger. And he wrote that in a book about revelation this is the same connection those relationships grow routine and we begin to take the lord for granted and the love gets tainted so what do you do if your love grows cold what do you do if it gets tainted and you're just going through the motions to do the right things to say the right things act the right way Jesus answers that for us in verse 5. 
It says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, restore. I don't remember what Ben said. He had, he had a different R on that end. Those are the three R's here. As, as we think, what do you do if your love grows cold for God? Remember, repent, and restore. And that word remember in the Greek, the tense of it is remember and keep on remembering. Always remember. Continue to remember every single day what you have fallen for. What did it look like when you first gave your life to Christ? How did it make you feel? How did it change your world? How did it change your daily life? What was that passion like to know Jesus better? Did you read the Word of God? Did you worship? Did you serve in ministries out of the abundance of your heart? What did it look like for you when it was fresh and new and exciting? And how have you left that? Remember those things. How did you commune with God when you were excited to. I can point to one moment in my life. Not everyone can do that, but I have a moment in time that for me is an altar of remembrance that I can think back to and say, this is the moment where God became real to me and I can remember that passion that I felt. I was only 13 years old and I, I knew at that moment that the rest of my life was going to be devoted to Christ or try to be at least. And maybe you have a moment like that that you can think back to. And see, right there, I remember that moment where the passion and love was on fire. Remember that. If you don't have a moment like that, that's okay. But I would tell you, you need to pray and ask God to give you that. Give you a moment where you just understand what it means to be alive with passion for God. Pray and ask God with real passion and love, that tell them, God, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior, and I want to understand what it means to love you deeply. Remember and repent. The word repent literally means turn around in the opposite direction and go the other way. It means spin around 180 degrees and head back. We repent from sin in our lives, when we ask Christ to be our Savior. But we don't stop repenting. We are always repenting. We are always turning away from the things that take us away from God and repenting and turning more towards God. One of my professors in seminary, every year she would make a repentance plan. I thought that was awesome. Every year she'd sit down and be like, how am I going to repent from my selfishness, my, selfishness, my sin, and turn more towards Jesus? And so God says, remember all that stuff that you once did to have passion and love for me and then repent from walking away from those things and repent and go back towards them. Head back in that direction. Change your mind and change your direction. And he says, once you've done that, once you have remembered and repented, then it's time to restore. Restore those things that were once a part of your life that gave you a passion for the Lord doing the things that you did at first. What made you passionate about Jesus? Was it reading the Word of God every day? Was it worshiping Him in corporate worship times or alone in your car blasting 
David Crowder music and just like rock out? Is it spending time in prayer by yourself or with others? Is it serving in ministry? Is it going to Bible studies? What was it in your life when you were passionate about Jesus that you can look back and say, that's not in my life anymore? Repent and go back towards it. Restore those things in your life. Pastor Skip Heitzig said, it's more important to Jesus what you do with him than what you do for him. It's so good. It's more important to Jesus what you do with him than what you do for him. The second part of verse 5 is extremely sobering to me. The part we read first was just A. B is if not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If God removes the lampstand from the church, He is removing the light that shines into the world. Ultimately, He is removing the church. The sobering part of this to me is, if you go to Ephesus today, there is no church to speak of. There are some Christians, but there is no world-changing local congregation of believers that are reaching into all of the world with the gospel. Their passion for the Lord died, and eventually the church died with it on a local sense. And that, to me, incredibly sad to think that one day alliance fellowship could lose its passion for the lord and shutter its doors because the lampstand was taken away from us is a terrifying idea because we start being motivated by all the wrong things rather than love for god we'll finish today with verse seven again he who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, hey, listen up. If you have ears, turn them on and listen to this. The Spirit of God has a message for you. He says, if you are a conqueror, or your version might say, if you are an overcomer, And this is speaking of the people that remain faithful to God throughout the persecution of the world, throughout the sin of the world and and everything that's going on with the temple of Artemis and everything that's going on there and for us today. Those who remain faithful to God and remain faithful to their love of God and are motivated by it, who are moving towards Jesus to all of those, he says, you will eat from the tree of life. The tree of life is an incredibly interesting thing in the Bible because it's all over the Bible. Literally from Genesis chapter 2 to Revelation 22. Very beginning, very end. It speaks of this tree of life. It's a different tree than the tree that Adam and Eve ate from. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's another tree in the garden. It's the tree of life. And it's the tree that grants eternal life. And after sin came into the world... God literally shut that tree off. He put an angel with a flaming sword in front of it. And that sounds mean, but it's not mean because if we had eaten from that tree in our sinful state, 
then we would have lived for eternity in sin. It's getting very, very deep theological stuff, but it's a scary idea. Can you imagine being immortal, but also being just as sinful and broken as you are now? And your bodies are still decaying. You're just getting older and older and older until forever. So God protects us from that, hides the tree of life, and says, I'll see you again in Revelation 22. When I come back to restore the kingdom of God and to take away your sins, then you will have access again to the tree of life. Those who remain faithful to Christ in the midst of this persecution, in a world full of pagan idol worship, in a world full of destruction, to all of those who remain faithful to their first love, and that doesn't mean perfect. We are going to fail again and again. But do we repent and remember and turn back towards Jesus and say, I want to restore this relationship with you. It is so easy for us in our lives to begin to veer away from our first love. Whether it's God, the ultimate first love, or in our marriage, or in relationship, we veer and suddenly we wake up and realize, like, I'm so far from where I'm supposed to be. So again, God speaks to Ephesus, he speaks to Alliance Fellowship today, and he says, remember, repent, and restore. Worship team, you guys can come back up. He says, when you eat of that tree of life, he will give you eternal life, which he says is paradise with God. This is heaven. There's this ultimate prize. The whole reason that we serve the Lord is because we want to be with Him forever and spend eternity in glory with Him. He says, this is the path. It's great that you're doing the right things. It's great that your life looks put together. It's great that you say the right things to people. But if your motivation is not love, you're a clanging symbol. And it's not heading in the right direction. May all of us hear this message. May we hear from God. And may we be challenged to really ask ourselves, what is my motivation for why I'm doing what I'm doing? For why I'm living the life that I'm living? For the kind of husband that I am or wife and the kind of follower of Christ? What is the motivation that drives me forward every day? If the answer is not love, then you need to beg God to change you. Because nothing else will do. It is the only motivation that changes lives and changes the world and changes your heart. As we finish today, there will be pastor pastor and, and elders, prayer partners around. If there's anything that we can pray for you for, whether it has to do with this message, whether it's just something going on in your life, if you're like, I need Jesus, I would love to pray with you. Whatever it is, we would love to pray for you. Let us do that. You pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for revelation. It's so deep and rich, but it's also so simple. You boil it down, you say, what is the purpose of life? What is the motivation that gets you up every day? And God, would you 
Help us to, re- to remember and to repent and to restore that that motivation would be our love for you. Jesus, spurn a fire. Drive a fire into our souls so that we can devote everything to you and to the kingdom that you are building here so that more and more people can know you and love you and be saved by you. In Jesus' name, amen.